0: Please turn in your copy of God's Word to the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 20. We have over this past week viewed together Gethsemane, and we have seen Christ before Pilate. We have dwelt upon the passion of our Lord How he came to satisfy the wrath of God, to be a substitute for sinners, in our place condemned he stood. and Now, from the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, resurrection appearances of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Our Father… We come with gratitude that our Savior did this great work upon the cross, but also, Heavenly Father, for gratitude for the knowledge of the certain fact that He was raised for our justification. And We ask, Father, that those who may be among us today who are not justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, who have never trusted in Him, will this morning trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray then for the work of the Holy Spirit in every heart, and that the people of God will be built up in the most holy faith, and that we may have an even deeper appreciation of these texts with which we are so familiar, and they are so dear to us. Hear our prayer, take the Word of God given by divine inspiration. May the Spirit of God illumine its page, and may everyone here savingly see Jesus Christ the only Redeemer of sinners, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand, John chapter 20. This is the Word of God. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, "Rabboni," which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, you may have life in His name. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the chapter in John's Gospel that we have just read is the announcement of an event. The Gospel is not the proclamation of a vague idea of spirituality that might be even if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. Without the event... Here recorded, Christianity would be a hopeless delusion. The apostles of Jesus went out into the world proclaiming the historic fact, He is risen, and therefore He is the Savior, and you can entrust your eternal soul to Him. He is the sinless one who lived a sinless life and went to the cross and atoned for the sins of sinners And he can save us from our sins because the same body that was placed in the tomb has been raised from the tomb for our justification. And therefore, without exaggeration, I can affirm that there is nothing in the world more important than what we have just heard in the reading of John chapter 20 this morning. We see the hopelessness of our world. We see the helplessness of our world. Our universities largely teach that there is no ultimate authority, that there is no ultimate truth. But here, in this text, we find a text that tells us that the God-man once crucified rose from the dead and did this to save sinners from their sin and unbelief. The only real hope for the lost hangs upon the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so we enter into this text this morning, and the first thing that we see is the material evidence, the material evidence of His resurrection from the dead. This takes in the first 10 verses. The section stresses that Jesus' resurrection took place in the world of history, in the world of time and space, in the world of materiality. And this points to God's certain work of salvation through His Son in history, Mary attests to the open tomb. In early morning as the sky slowly awakened with light, Mary trudged to the tomb, and there she found that the stone had been rolled away. Each gospel narrative mentions the removal of the stone. Alfred Edersheim, that great Jewish Christian scholar, says, to have left the stone there when the tomb was empty would have implied what was no longer true. But there is a sublime irony in the contrast between man's elaborate precautions and the ease with which the divine hand can sweep them aside. And so she rightly concludes that the tomb is empty, and she races to tell Peter and John, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him, but he's not in the tomb. Peter and John then attest to the empty tomb. Peter takes the lead. John, the younger man, overtakes Peter, and he's the first to the tomb. And then there's this this verb paracupto that means bending beside or stooping or bending over. He looks inside the tomb. Peter enters impetuously and earnestly gazes. That's the verb. He earnestly gazes upon the scene, his eye undoubtedly taking in one point and then another. Jesus is not there. How is this to be accounted for? Well, you know the way in which it's typically accounted for by those who deny the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They tell us that the disciples removed it. Well, what disciples? Not these disciples, not the disciples that we find in the in the reliable documents of the New Testament. They tell us the disciples removed it. Then they went and they preached the gospel and they suffered and bled and died for a corpse. Well, you really have to throw your mind in the bushes to believe that. And then there are others who say the authorities removed them. Well, the authorities would have wanted to produce this evidence to squelch the preaching of the gospel as they opposed Christian preaching in the early church. Christianity could not have survived and certainly not have thrived as it did in Jerusalem without an empty tomb. And then we find in this text the stress on the carefully ordered grave clothes. There's no evidence of haste here. There's again this verb, enteliso, that means to roll up or to fold. And so the facial covering had been, had been carefully folded and set to the side. The grave clothes are undisturbed. Grave robbers do not do such things. John then entered, saw, and believed. Up to this point, they had not understood what the Scriptures would teach regarding the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but all came to light for John in this moment. B.F. Westcott made the statement, The belief in the resurrection was produced in spite of the most complete unreadiness on the part of the disciples to accept it. When they did accept it, people of God, it was as if the ground shook with under, underneath their feet. I ask you the question, what changed John? What changed Peter? What changed the other disciples from this depressed, dejected group of men to the powerful proclaimers of Jesus Christ risen from the dead? What later would change that brilliant apostle Paul from Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church? to one who proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There must have been a cause adequate to produce these changes and to compel the church to preach the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There was a cause adequate. The cause was Jesus did rise from the dead. The same body that was placed in the tomb was raised by the power of God from the tomb. But then we move on, and the second thing we see is Jesus' self-disclosure to Mary that takes in verses 11 through 18. Mary undoubtedly had come back, had followed Peter and John, and she remains there weeping. And in verses 11 through 13, we read, "'But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet.' They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And then she turns around, and there is the risen Christ who comes to her. And immediately she did not know him. Why? Well, perhaps she was still somewhat in darkness. I'm talking about the darkness of the morning. Or because she had not expected him to rise from the dead. The disciples didn't expect it. He did not He did not, in advance, open their eyes to the degree that they would be prepared simply to say, oh, he's going to rise from the dead. This woman was not prepared for this, and she was lost in her grief. And then also, there's the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, but he is there in his glorified body. Again, as Edersheim says, so unlike and yet so like was the glorified body to that which they had known. There are, by the way, implications for what the believer's body will be like when the ascended Christ comes again and raises the Christian dead. Our bodies laid in the grave will be raised from the grave. A true body, the same body placed in the grave, will be raised from the body and yet glorified and made fit for eternity when our perfected souls are reunited with our bodies. So, Mary was not expecting Jesus to rise. She was lost in grief. There was the the sameness yet the difference in the resurrected body of Jesus. But when Jesus spoke her name, Mary, she knew Him. All cleared up for her. She had heard that voice, That voice that taught the truth, that spoke tender words of love, that spoke the grace of God and the salvation of sinners, that had even said that he would die and that he would rise on the third day. She had heard that voice. Indeed, that voice had in omnipotence cast out of her seven demons that had possessed her very life and had made her life something of a hell. That voice gave her new life. She knew that voice. Mary. John 10 says that when the Good Shepherd speaks, his sheep know his voice. And she responds, Vraboni. Greater depth of respect than simply rabbi. Yes, it means teacher, but a deep level of respect. Gerhardus Voss says, Once given the intimate bond of faith between a sinner and his Savior, there can be no death to such a relationship. He goes on to say, If we have learned to know ourselves guilty sinners, destitute of all hope and life in ourselves, and if we have experienced that from Him, came to us pardon, peace, and strength, will it not sound like mockery in our ears if somebody tells us that it does not matter whether Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. So, obviously, she's clinging to him. She wants him to remain. She wants him to stay. Do not hold on to me. The desire for communion will come in a deeper way after I have ascended, and the Spirit of God is poured out on the day of Pentecost upon the New Covenant church. And then, as I taught my disciples in John 16, there will be a depth of communion with me through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, coming and telling, she brought good news. We read of it in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. She saw the Lord Jesus, who had been raised by the power of God from the tomb. Jesus Christ lives. And mention of the women in the resurrection narratives, including Mary Magdalene, is very important. Because it attests to the historical fact of the resurrection due to the unjustifiable approach to women in this time and place in history where their their witness was not highly regarded and yet it's here. It's an historical fact. And then we move along and we see from gloom to depression to meaning and joy. Verses 19 through 23. Early one evening, the disciples are together behind closed doors out of fear. They were confused. They were dejected. They were depressed because they had no categories For a crucified Messiah, bodily resurrected Jesus, not bound by any conditions of our experience, he simply appears among them and he brings the common greeting Peace be with you. Peace be with you. I am the one who has brought peace to this troubled world, I am the one who brings peace to souls that are guilty. I am the one who died on the cross for your peace. I am the one who was raised from the dead and lives to continue to bring peace to those whose hearts the Spirit of God will open. Someone here today does not have peace. You know that you are guilty before God. You know that you are an estranged sinner, that you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You know that you do not have peace, Rather, your heart and your life are in constant guilt-ridden agitation. May the Spirit of God take the word of Jesus to your heart this morning. Peace be to you through His shed blood and resurrection from the dead. And then we read in verse 20, as He is there in the midst of the disciples, when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So he showed them his wounds. John had specifically recorded the wounded side on the cross. Here is a real body with real wounds because he brought real atonement and real salvation. And he is right there talking with his disciples. And his disciples were convinced that Jesus rose from the dead because they saw him and because they saw his wounded side and hands and feet. There was a movement from sadness at this point, from helplessness, from fear, to gladness and boldness and a new and certain hope. This continues any time a sinner is converted to Jesus Christ by the power of God. In verses 21 and following we read, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Verses that would take a long time for me to open and expound this morning, but simply to say that peace comes as a result of his death and resurrection, and now he says to the representatives of his church, go and proclaim that peace with God through my my atoning death and resurrection. Christ fulfilled the task the Father gave him, and now they are to go and fulfill the Savior's Task that the resurrected Lord has placed on them. Our mission proceeds from His mission, and for this, they need the Holy Spirit's power and the Holy Spirit's enablement. And in the power of the Spirit, an ordered church discipline is established, and the mission and authority of the church is established by the risen Lord. And as He breathes on them the Spirit of God, this shows that the church now possesses the power. Of the future kingdom of God, in its fateful proclamation of the Word that will achieve the purpose to which God sends it. that there was one disciple who was not there with the others, when Jesus appeared to them on that evening. and that disciple, as you know, was Thomas. And so as we move along in the text, fourthly we see doubt dispelled appearance of the resurrected Lord to Thomas. Not that Thomas was the only disciple that had need of the removal of doubt, but he did not believe the testimony of his brethren that they had seen the risen Lord, and he was adamant in that doubt. And he says, as it is recorded here in verse 25, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The cross so overwhelmed Thomas, reality seemed to contradict hope, and he wants tangible evidence. And then, you know, liberal scholars through the centuries have said, Adolf Harnack being an example— They've argued that the church came to believe the resurrection by simply an accumulation of circumstantial reports. Nothing could be more wrong. According to the Gospel narratives and also 1 Corinthians 15, we have five appearances in one day. Mary Magdalene, the women, the two on the Emmaus Road, Peter, the ten, five more over 40 days, the appearance to James, over 500 at once that saw the risen Lord, and not too long after to the highly educated Saul of Tarsus. Well, now he appears to this one unbelieving disciple, Thomas. The other disciples told Thomas that they had seen Jesus, but he would not believe And unless he sees the nail print and puts his finger into them and his hands into Jesus' side, he will not believe. And the text in the Greek New Testament actually uses again here the double negative, emphatically, I will never believe. I will never, never believe. It could be translated. The only real sense in which there can be a resurrection is a bodily resurrection. Thomas knows that. What makes Thomas' unbelief pass away? His unbelief passes when the risen Lord shows himself to him. Verses 26 and following. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your, out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The text underscores the true, real, historic event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right, Jesus says, do what you you've said. You want to touch my hands? Touch them. You want to put your 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 hand, your 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 fingers in this in this scar in my side, then then do so. Where, the, where I was pierced with with a spear, just just do it. But he had no need to touch the Lord. The sight and sound of him was enough, and he believes. And in verse 28, he cries out, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He cries out now in complete faith and with remarkable confidence, not needing to touch him. How many today say, unless I see a miracle, I will not believe. On the authority of his word, God can break any heart's rebellion. Let me say to you plainly, He is sovereign over your soul. He's even sovereign over your rebellion and over your unbelief. If the God of the Bible, who is the sovereign Lord, intends to save you, you will not be able to stop him. My Lord and my God. Notice that Thomas is addressing Jesus. You know, if you talk with a Jehovah's Witness who comes to your door, they will say that Thomas is just using an expletive. In other words, he cursed. It was blasphemy. Well, certainly that's not the case. The text tells us he is addressing Jesus. He is saying to him, you are God, my Lord and my God. And in this statement, the Gospel of John now comes full circle For how did John begin in his prologue? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right in the beginning, there's the proclamation of the deity of Jesus Christ. And now Thomas sees it all, my Lord and my God. Isn't this the answer? to hopelessness? Isn't this the answer to doubt? And Thomas now by faith sees to the bottom of things. He sees all of the necessary implications that Jesus rose from the dead, not a mere resuscitation. That mere men do not rise from the dead, but he is not a mere man. He is God in the flesh. The resurrection of Jesus is the proclamation, the affirmation, the declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ, God become flesh, who dwelt among us, who obeyed the law that we broke, who went to the cross and bore the wrath of God that was against us, and who rose bodily from the tomb. And so in verse 29, it is very important that this is added by divine inspiration for us this morning. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In saying this, Jesus has his eye on someone here, undoubtedly, this morning. He has his eye on you. This word is for you. The faith of those who saw the risen Christ is not superior to the faith that is based upon the testimony of the apostles, the faith based upon God's Word written. And I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead because the Bible tells me so, and because God has granted me saving faith to believe on the testimony of those who saw Him, these disciples, these apostles, that Jesus rose from the dead. And I will argue that any other view leads to total despair and violates intellectual integrity. You know, it's something that J. Gresham Machen said about this, and he said it in many different places in his wonderful writings. Machen was perhaps the greatest conservative New Testament scholar of the 20th century. He was a defender of the faith, and he says, "Why do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus when?" I might not believe, even on the basis of overwhelming testimony, in the resurrection of one of my contemporaries. You see what he's saying. Men just don't rise from the dead. Uh, My contemporaries aren't rising from the dead. Why should I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, among many things that he says, he says this. The question seems at first sight hard to answer, but the answer is really not so difficult as it seems. The answer is that I believe in the miracle which is at the foundation of the Christian church. Because in that case, the question does not concern merely the resurrection of a person about whom I know nothing, a mere X or Y, but it concerns specifically the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus was like no person who had ever lived. It is unbelievable, I say, that any ordinary man should be raised from the dead. But then Jesus was no ordinary man. In his case, the enormous presumption against miracle is reversed. In his case, far from its being inconceivable that he should have been raised, it is inconceivable that he should not have been raised. Such an one as he could not possibly have been holden of death. Thus, the direct evidence for the resurrection is supplemented by the impression of the moral uniqueness of Jesus' person. That does not mean that if we are impressed by the moral uniqueness of Jesus' person, the direct evidence for the resurrection is unnecessary, or that the Christian can be indifferent to it. But it does mean that impression must be added to the direct evidence in order to produce conviction. He's right, Jake Gresson Machen. There's something else, too. When you actually come to see yourself in view of the holiness of God, and that our sin against Him deserves His infinite displeasure, when the Spirit of God opens our hearts to actually see that I'm a lost, undone sinner, then we will not have any problem with miracle. Indeed, we will come to the conclusion without the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead there is no way that this guilt in my heart could be removed and could be dealt with. See your need, and you will see the reason for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So verse 29 again. Do you see how important it is? Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Faith is the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. But let us be plain. Faith is much more than that. It is belief in Jesus who rose from the dead. The liberal Jesus, that good teacher, really nothing more. He never existed. Indeed, having said that he was God in the flesh, that he was a substitute on the cross for sinners, that he would rise from the dead. If these things did not happen, then he certainly was anything but a good teacher. If he had, if he had simply been a good teacher, then there would have been, as someone has said, a moral contradiction at the core of his being, and he could not be trusted. No. The Jesus of the New Testament, in whom the disciples came to believe and proclaimed, claimed to be God in the flesh, the one whom men must in faith exclaim, My Lord and my God. And Machen was absolutely right in his great contest with liberalism when he affirmed this rule for us all. No facts, no good news. No good news, no hope. No facts, no good news, no good news, no hope. The Bible is quite useless unless it is a record of facts. So, what is revealed here are facts, historical facts. What is revealed here is truth. It is truth from God to man. It is truth for all times, for all places, and for all people. It is true for America. It is true for Africa. It is true for China. It is true for every nation and people on earth. The truth that can save and deliver From the opaque malaise drenched in sin that is modern life. So I have the privilege this morning of being in the train of these men who saw the risen Lord and who went out into the world and were willing to suffer and bleed and die themselves that the message, Christ is risen, be heard by other sinners in need of the grace of God, the witnesses who heard him, who saw them with their eyes, who touched them with their hands, and who, even through this word this morning, call you to faith in the risen Lord. I want you to take note of the last two verses of this chapter, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Oh, Christianity is based upon facts, based upon history, but there is more to faith than than only affirming the facts. And John stresses this other necessary element for true faith. When he says that we are so in the darkness of sin, which is one of the themes of John's gospel, that it requires a change at the very core of our being in order to believe in Jesus. The evidence of the resurrection is incontrovertible, But the human heart is darkened by sin, and therefore it is required this monumental change at the core of our being to see the facts to be what they are. And what is that change? In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus what that change was when he said to him, You must be born again. It's the new birth. The Spirit of God must make us to be new men and new women and new children in the very core of our souls. The Spirit of God must make us new if ever the facts will lead us to put our faith in Jesus. So Charles Spurgeon was right when he said on 1 Peter 1, 8, and 9, seeing is not believing. Okay, now that's true. There are those who could see the miracles of Jesus, who could even see the resurrected Lord and still not have saving faith. Seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. You must be born again. The Spirit of God leads to saving conviction, to a conscious act of faith in Christ alone for your salvation. In God's appointment, we are all here today. You are here today, and you have heard this gospel message from the gospel of John. And now you may go away and read it for yourselves, because we are told in verses 30 and 31 that the reason God gave the gospel of John is to bring lost sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. But I want you to remember the word of an old theologian whose name was John Duncan. He said, God needs to do a great deal to sinners in order to turn them, but God is requiring nothing of sinners but that they return. The gospel is preached to you freely. God is not saying, you need to be better. You need to become more moral. You need to clean yourself up. You need to straighten up your act. You need to become more respectable. No, He's saying, let's, let's shed all of that. You come just as you are in all of your sin, in all of your darkness, in all of your guilt, in all of your shame, you come just as you are. The only thing he requires is that you believe, that you return. May the Spirit of the Lord be at work today to enable you to heed this gospel call by his own internal saving power as I say finally, This word from Romans 10, on the authority of God's word, I say to you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen and amen.